This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Friends, welcome to Almost Heretical. So excited that you are here. Got a lot to get to today, so we're going to jump right in. I ended the last episode saying that I had some questions. We've been talking about God and how God relates to humans and the sacrificial system and atonement to an extent and like this nuclear reactor and, and all of these things. And I said I had some questions and I said that no matter what we were talking about this week, we are going to do those questions. And so we are. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow through on that. But also, a few listeners have gotten in touch and shared some of their questions. We may not be able to get to all of them, but we're going to try to squeak some of those in today as well. All right, Tim, are you up for this? Let's do it. Okay. You want to start with one of mine? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well then let's start with Annie's question. Annie sent in um, some audio, and you may have heard us do this on the show before, where we play a piece of audio from one of you. And if you want that to be you and hear your voice on this show and get your question answered, you can do that at almostheretical.com. There's a way to submit audio from your phone or your computer or wherever. We would love that. Okay, so here's Annie's question. Hi, Nate and Tim. It's Annie from Montrose, Virginia. I've been really enjoying your discussion about the holiness of blood. Um, and my question is, if blood is the ultimate cleanser and sometimes the ultimate anointer, why is menstrual blood so reviled? It seems like it should be something holy, um, particularly the amniotic fluid of the womb, which is essentially a mixture of blood and water, should be extra, extra holy. So that is just a woman's two cents on the holiness of blood. And I would be very interested to hear what you all think about it. Thanks so much. Yes, Annie, thank you for your two cents and a great question. Nate, you got any thoughts before I jump in? Um, well, just that I appreciate it. I always appreciate it when people, specifically women, point out angles that we're missing. So we are two straight white dudes um, and to hear from people that are not that is always is always wonderful. So if you ever feel like there's something we're missing, we definitely want to hear it. And we'd love for you to chime in with your voice and, and give you a platform on this show to, to kind of share things like that as well. So thank you, Annie, for doing that. And um, that is, I think it's a really good question. Why, if you've just talked about this, this substance, blood being so um, special and holy, why does it then make someone unclean? It seems a little bit unfair. Totally, yeah. And we'll see that like many good questions uh, and those that I get most excited to discuss, this one also will have some extra side benefits. We'll learn other things and clarify some things by addressing this question. Uh, so first, w one little thing I know the way so many churches and Bible teachers have talked about Leviticus and purity and impurity makes it seem that to call menstruation a defiling force or a defiling process, that that sounds as if it's being reviled. But I don't think the authors of the texts were reviling uh, menstrual blood, menstruation, childbirth, any of that at all. Um, to say it's unclean doesn't mean anything negative uh, morally. Well, no, that, that's good. But like, if it puts you in a state of unclean, unclean isn't, I, we've talked about this on the show, like it doesn't mean you're bad or you're wrong, but it's still, you're unclean. And she's just asking like, if that substance makes 
makes you clean, then why would it make you unclean in that standpoint? Not a good or bad anything, but just, yeah, I think that's totally. where the question's coming from. Yep, which is a totally logical, uh, good question. Uh, so here, here's, uh, let's just jump into it. Jacob Milgram, again, a guy I've referenced a lot because essentially all Levitical scholarship worth uh, taking into consideration has been built on top of uh, Jacob Milgram. Um, it doesn't mean I or anybody should agree with everything he's said, uh, but he has sort of set the new standard. So one of the things that he is famous for in his Leviticus scholarship is asserting, in a way that I, I don't fully agree with, but he's he's on to something, asserting that there's a major theme that essentially is the underlying logic of of most of, if not all of, what we see in the Levitical system. And that is, the theme is about life versus death. And part of actually how he gets to that uh, emphasis of this theme is by looking at blood and by looking at why is, is blood in, a negative, right? Why is it a defiling force? Why is blood a, a cleansing positive at times? Um, and, and how do we make sense of those sort of what seem to be competing uh, data points? Uh, and, and then what I'll say, what I've been trying to add is I actually think that blood is usually insulating and atoning. Usually blood makes things holy. Sometimes, more rarely, blood is used as a cleanser, and we'll actually see there is a, a certain in particular and special reason why. So here's a, a key text. I didn't see this or notice this until uh, Milgram pointed it out or until I read uh, Jacob Milgram's scholarship, and that is, there is an intentional strategic literary association embedded into the Torah between skin disease and death. And so we'll see how this makes makes sense in a, in a second. Uh, one of the only times, or the only time, that blood is used as a cleanser is when is to treat and, and purify skin disease. Okay, and one thing that Milgram has pointed out is what you see is this seems sort of random, and I think it's been put there intentionally. In Numbers 12, uh, you may not remember this, but in one of the grumbling narratives, uh, Aaron and Miriam grumble against Moses, and Miriam is punished by receiving a skin disease. So I've used the term leper um, or leprosy. Uh, I may continue to use that just because it's uh, it's easier to say than a person who has a skin disease, but just to clarify, like... We don't know what disease this was. This wasn't like a medical uh, diagnosis. This is basically this general category of, of something is happening to a person's skin. And this is, put, this is lumped together with something can happen to the skin of a tent. And what we'll see is that essentially what the authors are saying is happening when there's sort of like scaly disease. That's the way uh, Jacob Milgram uh, translates this, scale disease. Uh, when like part of the, the flesh of a person or the flesh of a wall, part of the coating uh, starts to come off or peel or mold or disintegrate. Uh, 
essentially it's as if that thing is dying. So there's this line in Numbers 12, uh, specifically verse 12, Miriam gets essentially cursed with skin disease. And Moses says in this prayer, Oh, do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. So what Milgram has pointed out is essentially, at least in in the author's mind in numbers, there is an intrinsic connection between skin disease and death. To, To have skin disease, or as we usually say, leprosy, is essentially to be showing signs of the the symptoms of death. It's like an early onset of death is breaking out in a person's body or a person's home. And so let me say one more thing about this and then we'll connect this back to menstruation. So it's very interesting then, remember Nate, why do we say that blood is so special? What is the underlying scientific belief about why blood is special? The life is in the blood. Exactly. God's life was breathed into humanity, and blood is the the vessel that carries that life. And so it's really telling. This is essentially uh, affirming that this is the reason blood is special and that, that blood is quite special because the only time blood is used as a cleanser is when the disease is a disease of death. So it's essentially like a person is being stricken with death, not not like the person is dead, It's not like this is a resurrection uh, potion, right? But a part of their body has been stricken with death, according to this, at least this um, framework of ideas, the way they're being connected. And therefore, what better substance used to treat that than a substance that is itself the carrier of life, right? So, okay, so so there's some interesting data points that sort of highlight some, some stuff we need to see about blood. Jacob Milgram has taken that and going, okay, blood is is uh, super important in the Levitical system. Purity, impurity are super important. And here we're seeing this intentional theme that's about life and death. And so Milgram has actually made the case that essentially all defilement is somehow related to death or the loss of life. And all purification is somehow related to sort of restoring life to death. So it's easy to see that when we see that dead bodies, corpses, are contaminating, right? Um, And what Milgram has also done is essentially claimed, and I think he's at least partially correct, if not entirely right, that what menstruation is, or the the loss of, of blood at childbirth, The reason it is defiling is not because the person has touched the blood, but because the loss of the, of the substance that contains life represents a kind of losing of life, which is akin to a kind of death that is itself a sort of defiling process, a defiling force. So remember, we, we've touched on this briefly, Nate, you asked if there's like a male equivalent to the the problem or the defilement uh, related to menstruation. And I said, yes, they're set. Menstruation and defilement is set in direct parallel to what's been typically translated in modern English translations as a nocturnal emission, which is such a strange thing that we're reading about here. Uh, 
essentially some sort of we're talking about a wet dream or something like that. Yeah, something like that. A a uncontrolled, uh, unintentional uh, emission of male semen. It's the equivalent, and so so think about it. Uh, semen, which is called seed, which which produces the life of fruit or the life of a human being, uh, in the the biblical set of ideas, uh, is set in direct parallel to blood, which carries life within human bodies or all animal bodies. And so when a woman loses her blood is akin to when a man loses his semen. And so on one sense, you have this concern with the the substances themselves are defiling, right? You're not supposed to touch semen or if you can, but if you do, you become defiled. Let me say it that way. Uh, and you need to be cleansed and wait until you're clean before you go to the, the tabernacle or temple. Um, but there's also the sense that the the loss itself represents this kind of loss of life, and that is what's defiling. So, okay, that's that's essentially Milgram's paradigm. He's then extrapolated that and and looked to even like the food uh, the food laws, why certain foods are are banned and others are permitted, why all these other different more obscure laws. He's tried to say this is the primary paradigm for why all these laws, this is the underlying logic of every law. Um, essentially, everybody's critiqued him because m- most scholars agree that there simply isn't a a single universal uh, point of logic that can explain all of the strange, uh, strange to us, foreign to us, food laws and uh, and sexual codes and all those different things you see in Leviticus. So many people think he's overstating the idea, but it seems that there's enough evidence that there's something to Milgram's view about life versus death. And therefore it's, again, it's not that blood's bad, it's that we're losing actually something really good. And and that's Milgram's view. Gotcha. Um, but let me throw another one in the mix, which is Mary Douglas, who's the other sort of second giant uh, historically in uh, Levitical studies. So, and we've, I've mentioned her a couple times. Essentially what Jacob Milgram did, he's mostly a textual scholar, but then he did a lot of comparative research with other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Mary Douglas has actually has essentially shaken up biblical scholarship in a, in a landmark way that, that everybody has had to uh, deal with by essentially applying an anthropological approach. So what Mary Douglas did is basically looked at Leviticus and said, sure, this looks weird and strange to us, but let's look at our own modern cultures and different cultures around the world and see the ways that we all have our own internal, often unspoken sets of ideas about what is pure and what is defiling, right? What we can touch and what we shouldn't touch. And essentially tried to make a sort of anthropological, sociological sense out of Leviticus. And so she uh, made a really interesting observation that some other people have jumped off of, which is that there seems to be a, and this is very strange, perhaps even more strange than nocturnal emissions, uh, but there seems to be uh, intentional parallels and correlations within these texts between all of the the doors and borders and boundary markers, right? Remember, there's a lot of attention to like the door into the holy place and the door from the holy place into the most holy place and the curtain and the veil and the smoke screen, right? Like these, uh, the, the divider between each realm. Right. There's a lot of focus on, on that thing. 
she she pointed out that there uh, appears to be a correlation between those boundaries and the the orifices of a human body as like border spaces or like entryways, gateways. And so she, she combined that with uh, an observation that it seems like there's some sort of theme about control or a, a lack of control or like a, a chaotic disorderedness. And so blood is supposed to be in the body. Wait, so it's like it's less about the actual substance of semen or of blood in this case. And it's more about the fact that you didn't have control over that happening. It's a chaotic thing. And and part of that would maybe be because they don't understand. Now we know scientifically why those things are happening. But if you don't and this is just sort of happening to you, then it's maybe chaotic. And that's why you're saying it would make someone unclean. Or she is saying that? Yeah, potentially. Yep, exactly. So the, the nocturnal emission is like an uncontrolled use of sub, a substance, right? It's it's not staying within a man's body and it's not happening during sex when it, usually uh, an emission occurs. It's like this random disordered uh, loss of fluid, right? Uh, fluid correlated with life. And so similarly, potentially, uh, menstruation is this sort of inexplicable. Again, like you said, we now have all sorts of explanations for, for why uh, a woman menstruates. But this inexplicable loss of fluid that then is further connected with this idea that we have to be extremely careful when we cross a boundary from one boundary to the next. And the general idea, which I think we've highlighted pretty sufficiently so far, that this is all about not being careless and disordered, right? You have to be very careful who crosses into the holy place and whether they are prepared and that whether they are the appropriate person in the appropriate attire with the appropriate preparations right. to cross a border, right? So border crossings are potentially dangerous, lethal, uh, disastrous uh, points. And so she's made that connection between basically saying... Uh, Male and female fluids leaving their their genital areas, their orifices, in uncontrolled or inexplicable ways is kind of set in this metaphorical parallel to, for instance, if someone makes a charge at the tabernacle and, and some, you know, random guy out in the field who is unclean and not a priest tries to run in and enter the, the tabernacle. Remember, the, the job of the priests was to be security guards. They were to control that thing, <laughs> shut it down. They were actually supposed to, to kill the guy. Um, so, so Mary Douglas and some others have pointed out there seems to be this general thematic correlation uh, between um, between sort of control, the, the need for like ordered ordered spaces, and this sort of like spatialized sense of the human body uh, as a realm with with borders, essentially. So all of that sort of sounds strange and obscure. Here's what I think we can take from it. One, if all of that or some of all of that is happening in these texts, like it's again, just another thousandth reminder that these texts are working at an incredibly intricate, complicated level, right? And it's nothing like, hey, is blood good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you did a bad thing, now you're bad. You did a good thing, now you're... It's, it's just so much richer than that. Uh, more more metaphorical, more figural. There's a lot more illusion and, and um, overlapping of ideas happening. Uh, but two, the other thing I think it does is either one of these frameworks 
And to me, especially the fact that the the only time blood is explicitly used as a cleanser, although it's possible it's being alluded to with cleansing properties in other places, as as Milgram thinks, the only time it's specifically uh, prescribed as a cleanser is when the the thing to be cleansed is a kind of death, right? And what that means is it's affirming, uh, and again, that connection is being drawn from this Numbers 12.12 line, uh, but that means it affirms that the reason blood is special is because it is a carrier of divine life. I've shown that I think the text just outright says that, but we've missed that a lot of times because we're so foreign to, to thinking of the physical human body and anatomy in that way, right? It affirms that it's special for that reason, which then I think actually further affirms my theory uh, that blood isn't primarily a cleanser. It's primarily an, an insulating substance that makes things holy for precisely the same reasons, right? It's an insulating layer of life that when someone is is suffering the disease of death, aka skin disease, it's the only... The only um, defiling force that is spoken of in that way, then it's the only time it's used as a cleanser. Every other time blood is applied to the altar or the tabernacle or a person like the priests, and it makes those people fit to go further, uh, closer to God, further into holy space. So it seems like it's uh, just another affirmation point of sort of this, this building theory, but okay. Probably more than anybody needed to know, but I think it's potentially important at various levels. So thanks for the question. All right. Do you have any other questions on blood, Nate, or, or should we move on? Oh, we're moving on to more, more of my questions. I have two to get to. Uh, and so I'm just trying to decide basically which one I want to get to here. Okay, let's do this. I'll set this one up just a little bit. I will. I know a lot of people want me to ask the question of why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? And I am going to ask that. I'll ask that in just a little bit here. But I first want to ask this one because I have come to understand through reading, like a lot of, I think, uh, more progressive Christian authors out there, that what happened to Jesus was more so about us killing this person than it was about how I would have explained it for, you know, the first 25 years of my life, which was that, you know, Jesus had to come and die. He needed to, the whole point was that he was coming here to die, right? It was this thing that was, um, that he was doing instead of something that we were doing to him to expose what, (laughs) you know, the process that killed him, right? The, so I, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about it, like as a state killing, um, as a government sanctioned execution, uh, these type of things, um, instead of that more penal substitutionary atonement type of language of like, you know, God sending him to die type of a thing. And that has worked for me. And I think a lot of people that has worked for them and, and helped them to understand um, how the systems of the world can can do this to a to a person. But then this series that we're doing now on God relating to humans, and we've gotten into a bit of the sacrificial system and atonement, it seems like you're saying something very different about what happened when Jesus died. And it's about this like spreading of blood onto everybody and, and all that type of stuff. Should we not be talking about, are, are there, I guess, are there multiple ways to look at this? I'm guessing that there probably are, or 
slash and should we not be talking about the crucifixion of Jesus as like kind of a state sanctioned execution or killing? Like it's not, is that not, is that missing this larger thing that's actually going on here? Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess first just explain like why, um, why does it feel like the, this new exploration is intention with that? Well, I guess it would kind of feel like we accidentally <laughs> did humans, right? The, the, the state sanctioned killing. It was, it was humans at the time, like making this decision to take this person out um, because of some of the things they were saying. Then they accidentally completed the thing Jesus wanted to have completed, which was spreading his blood on everybody, which we still need to talk about how that happens. And that's a question we actually got from another listener on Twitter, Andy, um, talking about how, you know, why did Jesus have to die and how did his death, how that blood, how that applied to everybody? And you've tried to talk about that, but anyways, so did, did we just accidentally, the humans at the time that killed Jesus, did they accidentally complete this work of like spreading the blood of Jesus onto everything? And then when that soldier stabbed Jesus in the side and the, the blood is rushing, like the river, river of blood rushing from Jesus out to the world, like, was that like an accident on their part, but it was exactly what Jesus intended? Yeah. So it sounds like, um, you know, we focused for a while now, several conversations about at least hinting at, alluding to, and then the last couple conversations about the effect of Jesus's blood to, to make the world clean and holy. Um, that's like, Hey, there's a background, there's a whole underlying thing happening here. Um, Jesus was this science project that, uh, his body and blood was accomplishing these things. And therefore, there's like so much, um, let's see, is it that there's so much uh, like logic or, you know, intentionality doesn't feel like the right word, but there's meaning to all of that, that then that seems like it's in contrast or intention with the idea that that Jesus was killed wrongfully, executed wrongfully, uh, part of an, an unjust uh, yes. Execution yes, exactly. sentence. Yep. Yeah, yep. gotcha. So this is where, like, this is where um, we just have to remember and and learn to get better at, and also just more comfortable with uh, the, the multiplicity of the New Testament. Um, and and so, depending on where you look, you will see focus on different things. So, as you just mentioned, like John's Gospel pays a lot of attention to God sending Jesus. And so God is repeatedly mentioned as the active agent that we're supposed to appreciate. So God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to save it. And, you know, just I think in John 15 to 17, Jesus references being sent by the Father something like a dozen times, right? Wow. Yeah. It's uh, it's emphasized over and over and over again. Uh, other, in the Synoptic Gospels, you have way more emphasis, much less emphasis on God sending Jesus at all. We actually kind of have to implicitly deduce that. Uh, much more emphasis on both the the cruel injustice of it, the fact that Jesus didn't deserve to die, that there was no reason for Jesus to mm-hmm. die, right? He's set up against these criminals that, that potentially did deserve to die, or there's, you know... But right the there, whole... but right there. That That is focusing on the fact that he didn't have to die. But... You're you're exposing this system that is talking about how he really did have to die. That's what was needed in order to save the entire world was this blood spreading to everyone thing. Um, but then why are they focusing on the fact that look, look, like he was 
there was no reason for him to die. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. So um, two things, and I think both are important. So the basically, and then, okay, so, so one is focus on God sending Jesus, right? Which then gets confusing because like, isn't God Jesus? How is God sending God's self? All that mm-hmm. question, right? Mm-hmm. Then there's the focus on Jesus is essentially the, the passive victim of a cruel state and a cruel, uh, his own people, right? Turning, turning on him, at least the leaders of his people. Um, and then there's the third emphasis, depending on uh, if you look other places, for instance, Jesus himself saying- it's like the lamb being led to the slaughter. Or it's more like Jesus saying, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down, right? It's this, right. it's Jesus choosing, it's, you know, and then Philippians too, like Jesus- didn't choose to grasp onto power, but lay it down, right? So it's emphasizing that Jesus was self-sacrificial. So historically, and what you and I have spent a lot of time emotionally recovering from, is the emphasis on God choosing to sacrifice God's son, that has been one of the most problematic angles, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where you get into the divine child abuse view, penal substitution. Uh, So we've wanted to focus more on the other two. One is... Jesus as a, as somebody who chooses to lay down his own power, a beautiful, this is for me, been the, the life-saving uh, aspect of the gospel, the beautiful aspect of Christianity that, that I keep coming back to is an individual, and Jesus wasn't the only one, uh, but in, in Christianity, the, uh, the prototype of the individual who chooses to lay down his own power, even to the point of dying for his friends, right? So you get that great line of like, uh, you know, a good man uh, may may lay down his life, but like Jesus was basically this this uh, even greater, more more self sacrificial human who laid down his life for the world. Um, it's that self sacrifice, right? It's not child sacrifice. It's not child abuse. It's self sacrifice, and there's something beautiful in that. And then there's the other piece of like the anti empire, anti uh, anti oppression, anti-abuse, right? That's looking at the fact or in the, in the story, right? Um, the, the fact in the, the gospel story that Jesus was an un, unjustly accused, unjustly executed victim. And that then has the power to speak to all sorts of our criminal justice system and, uh, and political injustice and that sort of thing, right? So there's been a significant reason to focus on that. So, so one thing is just that um, when we, when we say, and I totally get it, when we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? I think what we are doing is accidentally affirming some of the worst assumptions that have led to, when we look at the God sending Jesus thing, reading that as, as God sacrificing somebody else. Okay. Do you think Jesus had to die? No. And that's exactly why that's huge. The, la- the language I've found that, um, that I think is really, uh, I, it, it's been really helpful for me. And I think potentially a game changer for a lot of us is it's, it's not that animals had to die at the tabernacle. It's that blood was so valuable that it was worth allowing animals to be killed for. Remember, there's this whole theme of in the garden, they're not supposed to kill animals. They're vegetarians, right? And in eating food and animal killing is gradually offered as an accommodation 
to this to the new state of affairs in the world. But there is even strong language within the Levitical system essentially saying that if you are out there killing animals that aren't at the tabernacle, if you don't bring them to the tabernacle to use their blood on the altar, you have committed, you, you are guilty of blood guilt. Essentially, you've committed murder. And so what it's saying is, is it's getting us back to this idea of there's a high value on all life, animal life included, sure. and the blood was valuable enough to use that life. It wasn't required. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Right, okay, so I'm saying at the point when Jesus enters the story, okay, I'm saying at that point, do you think he had to die? Not if you wind it back a couple thousand years, like, did we have to get to this point okay, where but someone would say, have to spread their blood? But I'm no, I'm saying, like, did Jesus at that point have to die? Or was he just here to, like, teach this stuff and then it started looking like, okay, I'm going to have to... But that's, I don't know. See, I struggle with this because even in the story of Jesus, he starts telling him pretty early, like... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in. I'm going to start saying all this stuff, and basically they're going to kill me for it, right? Right. That seems like a different story than like, hey, we need we need some blood here, uh, and the special kind of blood that could spread to the whole world, not just one lamb for one person's sin, kind of a thing. But like, we need something that could spread to the whole world. That seems like a different story than what it seems like Jesus was saying in the story. Yeah, I get it, and I'll and we'll explain it soon. Part of the death was about the blood, and part of the death was about the death and the resurrection, and had nothing to do with the blood. And both of those, the blood and the other thing, we'll just call it that for now, are both from Leviticus. Like that, That's why I think this whole set of conversations is so fascinating and important. But let's, let me pick on something real quick. When we use the language, had to die— did Jesus have to die or did animals have to die? Because what I want to keep repeating is anything we're seeing in the New Testament that refers to Jesus as an offering, accomplishing atonement, any of those things is drawing its language and the meaning of that language from Leviticus and the Torah, okay, the Levitical system. Okay. So we have to remember that. So we can't make up what the Levitical system meant and then say, see, that's what Jesus means. We have to read them together, right? So when we say, did Jesus have to die, what are... You, I'll just ask you, Nate, you're here. <laughs> what are you insinuating is is the result of if Jesus doesn't die? Like Jesus had to die or else what? Or else, I guess animals would have to keep dying. And then if you want to get back to like, why did animals have to die? That's what I was going to ask you is, okay, so like if animals, did they have to die? You'd probably, your answer would be like, no, they didn't. 
Well, then what's the alternative? Okay, so the, okay, that's great. It, isn't there a problem that needs to be fixed? Yeah. So this okay. So this is great. So think think about how I've tried to like tease out the big picture story. Life with God. God wants to be with the world again, and so God's going to be with a subsection of the world. But there are these obstacles right. in the way. So all these elaborate plans have to be put into place to allow God to be close. Okay. Yep. Blood is an important part of that plan that allows certain things to be accomplished that would be very difficult or take a long time or potentially utterly futile to accomplish apart from blood. Right. Okay. So what is the state of affairs or what is the good thing that wouldn't be able to happen without blood? Well, okay. So you're saying we just wouldn't be able to be close to God. So we could go on existing, but not be close to God. Correct. But I think is so, so is it fair to say that animals had to die? No, no, I guess. Okay. So if, if we want to be close to God, then animals have to die. That'd be a fair statement. Yes. There's a cost benefit. Okay. So then, so the only reason Jesus had to die is so that we didn't have to keep killing animals. Or is there another reason? And what the New Testament authors will go on to say is that what Jesus accomplished, accomplished it far more successfully in that now human beings get to, remember this is the language of Hebrews, waltz right on into the throne room, mm. right? Not like you bring an animal to the to the altar and you get to stand at the altar and have this moment on the outside of this building. You get to waltz right on into the throne room mm. and actually God is going to live inside of your body is the idea. So it happened more successfully and... It happened for the entire world, okay? And both of those things, I'll, I'll make the arguments later on, those are things that Leviticus and the Torah and the entire Hebrew Bible were suggesting was the ultimate point anyway. It's not like Jesus was critiquing the tabernacle as this like lame system that was only caught up in itself, right? And so Jesus is like, you know, creating this better... The, the point was... You know, it's that line of Moses wanting everybody to be prophets and the lines in Joel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel about God pouring out God's spirit on the whole world, men, women, and children, servants, all that, right? This was the idea. This was always supposed to be a universally flowing thing. And so the New Testament claims are that Jesus did this more, more thoroughly so that, again, and even the idea of like God living in people instead of the temple or tabernacle, that is right. It starts on Genesis, on page two, on Genesis two. Um, it's alluded to that that is the ultimate uh, goal where things are pointing. And then the idea is that this happened more universally than the Templar tabernacle uh, could accomplish and got rid of so much of the unfortunate division, division between Jew and Gentile, division between men and women, and the hierarchy, division between priests and non-priests, religious officials and, and everybody else. Got rid of all that because equally, and in this egalitarian, uh, equal playing field, everybody now was granted equal access to God. Th- those are the New Testament claims, okay? But again, it's not fair to say Jesus had to die. You can say Jesus had to die for those things to be accomplished. But I think what we say when we say, did Jesus have to die or did animals have to die, is we're, I think, many of us at least, are insinuating that, like, really bad things were going to happen to us otherwise. Which is, you're saying, giving that nod to the penal substitutionary atonement view, that like there was this penalty that was about to be handed down, or at the end of your life, if you want to draw the PSA view out to more modern day, like if at the end of your life, if you haven't, this thing hadn't have happened, 
then we would all just go to hell because we couldn't we weren't we weren't special enough to be with God or something like that because of the penalty. Yeah. I think the language, the New Testament, neither the New Testament nor the Hebrew Bible use the the language of requirement. They don't talk about that things had to die. They use the language of gift. The tabernacle was a gift. Jesus mm. was a gift that right. God gave to the world to accomplish something that couldn't be accomplished without it. Okay, let me try a really bad analogy. Really bad. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. This is just the first thing that came to my head. Okay. Uh-oh. No, it's not, it's not like... Always dangerous. <laughs> it's not like weird bad. It's just probably not great. Okay. So this is like someone giving you a, a zoo membership. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> just stay with me just for a half second. And then maybe we don't have to stay. Maybe, maybe you don't have to stay. No, just hold on. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. No, you have to stop talking and I get to now I get to run. No, with no, 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 no. Definitely not. Definitely not. I have a couple more <laughs> seconds on this. So it's like someone but gives I, you just, I think I get just it. hold on. Someone gives you a zoo membership. You don't have to go to the zoo. You didn't have to go to the zoo before. Nothing was going to happen to you if you didn't go to the zoo, except you might not, you know, get to be around elephants let's say, or those really cute like seals. No, it's otters. It's That's what they are. They're otters. That's what I, I go for the otter, the otter tank. I don't know. They just, they seem like they do cool stuff. What do you think is the most interesting animal at the zoo? Well, I have my, my favorite zoo uh, story. Do you want to hear it? Yes. Then I have a couple more seconds on this and then you can <laughs> respond. Okay. Yes. Give it to me. Okay. No. Okay. So the analogy no, no, is. No, stop. Stop. I, Tim, I could stop. live my, I could have lived. You were going to do your. My you whole life zoo story. without this moment. I, it's, I'm connect. Okay. Don't connect yet. Here's my Just zoo, zoo story. story. So we're at the zoo because actually my in-laws one time did give us a zoo membership. Right. It's fantastic. Yeah, we got one too. The only yep. time to San Francisco Zoo. The only time I've ever had a zoo membership. The only year that I ever went to the zoo. And we're there with some friends. And there's this ginormous hippopotamus, which hipp- hippopotami are the most ridiculous, huge, terrifying just otherworldly creatures. Yes. They're just, you know, if I didn't go to the zoo, we, I wouldn't. We've all seen a hippo before, Tim. Okay. Right. I just, but I'm saying, I wouldn't <laughs> even kidding. believe this animals are. Anyway, it, my it, story it, was. real. Yeah. The hippo's just sitting there like a rock for like two hours. And one of, and, but it's got the huge teeth just like sort of hanging out of the mouth. And one of my friends just being silly goes, hippo, show us your teeth. And literally the hippo turns its head as if it's acknowledging my friend and then opens its mouth and it turns out a hippo can open its mouth. Like, I don't know. It felt like it was almost 180 degrees, just yeah. like four feet across and then like slammed its teeth down and then like went back to sleep. <laughs> and it was like the most surreal, terrifying, hilarious, uh, zoo experience. So what if that's the command that the trainers actually taught it to like respond to when they do like a trick with it or something <laughs> like show us your teeth. Right. No, hold on. I have to get one story in too, because I actually have heard that story before. And then whenever you share that story, I share this story, which I was actually at the zoo with you on that membership. We went to like zoo lights or something at the San Francisco zoo. And so it was night. We were there. I think they had like the Christmas lights up or whatever. And we were just kind of walking around. There was like no one in there. We're just like walking around late at night. It's really dark. And we're just walking around the zoo. And I had kind of like wandered off to the side for a second. And I was just like walking past this. I didn't even know what I thought it was, but I thought it was just this like building offices or I don't know. And there's like a glass wall or something like that. And I'm just kind of like standing by this glass wall. I think I was maybe making a phone call or, or responding to someone or something like that. And I don't think I knew this was a glass wall, but all of a sudden this like huge Siberian tiger <laughs> starts walking up to me. And I mean, we're only like a couple inches away from each other, but it's like pitch dark and 
I can't see the Siberian tiger until it's maybe a foot away from me or six inches away from me because it's so dark and wherever they are in that little cage thing. And it just like walks right up. I mean, that was like the, I didn't know that there was glass. I didn't know any of that. So I just like, I just like started backing away. And yeah, anyways, that was, that was my zoo story. Okay. We have so much to get to. I don't know how we got down this rabbit hole. Probably all the people really into Leviticus, they just totally lost us in the last five minutes about zoos. And then all the people that are like so burned out and uh, and their brains are melting from all the Leviticus stuff. My people. Like happy to have five minutes of relief. <laughs> and then there's the animal rights activists who are going to be boycotting uh, the podcast from here on out. We don't uh, condone or discondone, whatever the opposite of condone. <laughs> We don't, we don't, we're not, we're not giving any kind of a judgment on zoos. We are just telling uh, an experience that we had at a zoo. No animals were injured in the making of this podcast. Okay. Would you like to finish your analogy? That was basically, it. just, you don't have to go to the zoo. <laughs> you don't have to go to the zoo, but if you do, there's some cool things that can happen. Maybe this is where this is a bad analogy or, or like a theme park, right? Like you don't have to go to Disneyland. Well, you hate Disneyland, so I won't use that one, but let's actually just use it. You don't have to go to Disneyland, but the majority of the people, like there's some fun things to do when you go there and it'd be really nice to get to go. And so getting that pass that someone gave you, that's pretty, that's a nice gift, but nothing terrible was going to happen to you if you didn't get to go. Is that? Yes. And so like, why is Christianity based on something called the good news? Like, we've all, because we've, so many of us have been trained with this bad news, good news paradigm. Like the good news is essentially the end of bad. It's basically a return from the fall back to a normal status quo. That is not why Paul was so excited. He ran around like a crazy man for 30, 40 years. Like the idea was something better than the world had ever heard of had occurred. Not because it was, it was that or everybody dies, Oh, 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 oh. So this is like that chasm thing we've talked about before with the two sides of the chasm. That kind of is maybe a bit more true to what the biblical writers were thinking. God can't be maybe as close to humans as God wants to because of this nuclear reactor concept. But the thing that you have to delete from that picture, I'm talking about the two sides of the cliff, right? And people put the cross of Jesus between and you get to go to the other side. The thing you have to delete from that picture is the big hell chasm scary thing down there. You're basically just drawing two sides and like why there needs to be or why there's like this separation, but you don't have to have this consequence of like, if these two sides can't come together permanently, then everyone's going to fall down into this chasm. Right. And it's not people who are far away from God on the other side of the chasm who are going to die because God's going to kill them. It's people who are too close to God that are going to die because it's simply not safe to walk into the, the center of a nuclear power plant. Or nuclear reactor. So what are the benefits of being close to God then? Yeah. Okay. So that's the question. That's the question. Like what is the, so if I make the claim that, that holiness is the gospel, I actually think we have to then start over and go, well, what good is holiness? Like what's the benefit? Yeah. What would the biblical writers be looking at us today and going like, oh, you're so lucky because dot, dot, dot. Part one, because God is living in your body. Okay. And so that means... That means that you yourself as a, as a living human being are the equivalent of the best thing that ever happened to the world before that happened, which was God coming to You're be not telling me why it's, with the world. Why it's so good. God coming to be with the world okay. by being with Israel in a container, which was the tabernacle. Okay. This is the 
This is the project. And it's twofold. One is... But they thought that was so good because they won every war. And they, like, as long as they had this box with them, they nothing bad happened to them and only good things happened to them. It's, but the prosperity, it's the, it's, the, it's the roots of the prosperity gospel. Yes and no. It's twofold. Um, and then, okay, finish this up real quick, and then I want to jump on to another question. There's this tension that, that's kind of tough. And I was actually just reflecting on this this morning. Um, there's the goodness of being together, just reunion for reunion's sake. And there's the work that is supposed to happen once back together. There's reunion for partnership's sake. And both are things. So the idea of like when God is there, when the ark goes out before them, they win wars instead of lose them. That's a thing. That's in the stories, right? That's a part of why they want God to be with them. There's also the sense with the, what the uh, Genesis 1 and 2 stories are getting at is the world was supposed to be a place where all of humanity ruled the world with God. So the idea is never just reunion for reunion's sake that we're just, mankind and God are just supposed to get together and walk around in the garden. Because even what Adam and Eve are supposed to do in the garden was to work and rule, right? That's that's the basic idea. It's always about <clears throat> reestablishing relationship in order to reestablish this set of jobs, essentially this way of governing the world. And remember, the entire background of this is there's a cosmic war. There's, there's a war going on. So the, the part of the point, the underlying idea, is that you need to get back with God in order to win this war, which is largely not, you know, not the uh, Canaanite uh, invasion, although that's wrapped up in this whole cosmic war. But it's this bigger picture of essentially getting the entire world back to worshiping Yahweh because the world has been given over to these other divine beings that are now at, at war with God. So there, basically there's this two sides of it, that Old New Testament, both, you've got to sort of hold them in tension at every point, which is at one point we just want to be with God because that's how things are supposed to be. And it's that's good because we get to be back together. It's like, yay, family reunion. But on the other side, it's like, no, there's there's a point to this. There's a, this is a means to an end kind of thing. And there's always sort of, if you just look at one, uh, it doesn't work and it gets ugly quickly, actually. Or, for instance, just boring, right? Then you get the, like, we're just in heaven singing songs in a choir, you know, floating around doing nothing. Um, or, like, God is just your, uh, your ploy to manipulate to gain power in the world, right? Sure. Um, so both of those are held in tension all the way throughout. Um, but the whole reason, like, remember all the Psalms that are, uh, that are basically just seeing how great the law is. And especially as Protestants, we read it and we're like, what in the world is Psalm 119? Like, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. Like they thought this was, this was a great gift. This was a mercy. Yeah. This was, uh, a grace. The whole word grace is the same as gift. Like these are one in the same word. The reason the new Testament talks about grace so much uh, is to talk about something that didn't need to happen, but did. That is the entire point of it. Um, so we've got this so backward because we've set up the whole thing as like, this better happen, this better happen or else we're all going to die, right? right? This better happen or else everybody's going to go to hell. And so I think what it actually ends up doing at an evangelistic level, you realize like, that's not sharing good news. That's actually manipulating somebody into believing something. But even on our own personal level, I think it actually ends up making us... Um, downplay how exciting this genuinely was to people. 
And also we just have some homework to do to go like, okay, we don't think the same things. And we've been around the idea of, yeah, God is in us and the Holy Spirit and all that, right? So we've been jaded on that for so long that it's hard to understand why that idea was so exciting uh, to people. But that is the thing. And I think finding out why the good the good news was so genuinely exciting to people as something specifically that didn't need to happen but that did, uh, that that's actually the, the form and flavor of what the gospel is. Okay, let's, uh, I could probably ask like a hundred more questions there, but let's leave that one and let's move on. I have one more question to get to. Do you have another listener question you want to get in here first? Yes. Okay. It came in an email. Uh, I'm just going to read a part of it, but this is in response to last week's episode where I made the claim that holiness is contagious uh, in the context of talking about holiness as the gospel. So it just says, uh, it's from Graham. I don't think you made the case that holiness is contagious. You strongly made the case that if you've been made holy by some method, then you have to honor that, and it's dangerous for you to not commit to that. But nowhere in that bit did you actually establish that holiness is actually contagious. As far as I can see, the idea that holiness can be contagious is entirely new when introduced by Jesus though his, through his touching of the unclean. And his idea that holiness flows out of you based on your internal transformation— is pretty much his cardinal sin for the religious authorities so far as I can follow. Okay, here's why I want to get into Graham's question. Uh, one is I didn't yet prove uh, that holiness is contagious, and I want to quickly do that just by reading some texts where that's exactly what it says, okay? Just so that's established. Um, two is I think where Graham went with this question is one of the things I'm most passionate about um, pushing us in a different direction. And that is the idea that Jesus is making up new interpretations of holiness, cleanness, what accomplishes those things, rather than Jesus simply reading Leviticus and the Torah and the entire Hebrew Bible as it has been collected for him, and essentially saying, see all those things that that, see the logic, see the science that those texts were talking about? That's that's what's happening here. Or that the forget even saying Jesus was doing that. That's what the, the New Testament authors were doing. And especially with holiness, we're gonna see that's an important one. So first let me just show a couple texts in Exodus and Leviticus. So first we'll see Exodus twenty nine, thirty five through thirty seven. Uh oh, first, uh, cut that out later, Nate. Okay. Nate, do you recall? Okay, you should have this part pretty pretty hammered down now. Uh, there were two categories with four possible states. Pop quiz. Okay, so there is clean and unclean, and then holy and common. Right. And do you remember that I said that two of those four, you could be especially that. You, it happened in uh, gradients. And two of them, you you couldn't. Yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> I do remember <laughs> you saying that. Um, I'm trying to remember. Holy is one of the ones you can be. That's a gradient. You can be more holy yep. or less holy. And the other is is defiled. So the language in most English translations is is most holy uh, and most unclean or most defiled. Mm-hmm. There's never most 
ordinary. It's, you're just common, right? And there's never uh, most clean. You're just, you're clean. So what this reveals, there's, there's actually this deeply embedded logic here, and we touched on it briefly. And then I pointed out one thing that I haven't seen uh, scholars point out. So it appears, uh, and Milgram and others uh, have affirmed this, that clean and common is the kind of neutral default, right? You you start there. The assumption is that's just sort of the, the starting place. Not the assumption okay. that everything in the world is clean, right? Because actually the assumption is that most of the world has been defiled. But that's the sort of neutral. Then you can become clean and holy by somehow attaining holiness. And you can become clean and really, really holy or really, 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 really holy, right? So holiness is kind of this like fluid scale, but you're either clean or not. Uh, and then, so you can you can positively change from clean and common to being clean and, and extra common, not just common, clean and holy. Or you can negatively change and be common and unclean, right? Those are the two directions. You can go up, you can go down, essentially. And so you can go really far down and become super, super defiled, super, super dirty and need a lot of cleansing. Or you can go really high up, super, super holy. Those are the two that change. The others are just like yes or no, black or white, uh, check the box. And the, the point I made uh, that I haven't seen many people point out, but I actually think ends up being very important, is that the language of most holy and, and most unclean also is correlated to the tr transmittability, I think that's a made-up word, to how well uh, those things can transmit, to how contagious they are. So we're going to look at four, four texts that specifically say these things are most holy, and what that means is if anything touches them, they become holy. All right, give them to me. Okay, four passages. We're going to talk about the altar, the anointing oil, and then everything that is anointed with that oil. The grain offering, which is just grain presented at the tabernacle, and the purification offering, which was animal meat presented at the tabernacle. All four, first one, Exodus 29, 35 through 37, says that the altar is most holy, and whatever it touches will become holy. This actually ends up being a central mechanism in the entire tabernacle because the altar is essentially the effective doorway. Nothing passes into the tabernacle without crossing the threshold of the altar. And so the altar has to essentially transform or consecrate everything that passes it. So what we see in Exodus 29 is when the altar is prepared to do what the altar does, is a whole bunch of blood is doused on the altar for seven days straight. They repeat, repeatedly spread blood on the altar to make it a most holy object and then when it's a most holy object, that object is expressly said to be capable of transforming any clean and common food into holy food. That's, that's what it does. And it's, and it's made to do that. It's made able to do that by a whole lot of blood. Okay. Then Exodus 30, the next chapter, uh, verses 22 through 33. You should read the whole thing. It's the prescription to create an elixir, which will be the special anointing oil. And this, this oil is most holy. And then what the oil is used for is to put it on objects, primarily the tabernacle itself and the objects that are in the tabernacle, like the table. And then 
whatever touches those objects becomes holy. So the, again, just like the blood, made the, putting blood on an altar made it so that the altar was most holy. And because the altar was most holy, anything that touched that altar was going to become holy. Then oil is placed on a bunch of objects in the tabernacle and makes them most holy. And then anything that touches those objects will become holy. And very interestingly, it is for this reason that, that the oil is a regulated substance. So it specifically said no one else is to follow this recipe. Like this is a recipe that only the high priest can use. Don't let anybody else use it. And don't ever put this oil on anything except what I told you to put it on. Right. So it's revealing the same logic as you said is there's a danger in allowing holiness to get out of control. So blood is a high, highly regulated substance. No one's allowed to eat blood. No one's supposed to touch blood. You're not supposed to, to kill an animal and take its blood except for at the tabernacle. It's regulated. And then the special anointing oil is regulated. Why? Specifically because they have the capacity to make things holy. Then if you go to Leviticus 6, you'll see in 17 and 18 that the grain offering is called expressly most holy. Whatever touches it will become holy. So this is food that's considered most holy and whatever touches the food will become holy. And then in verse 25 through 27, the purification offering is most holy. And whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And then it goes on to say, if any of the blood is splattered on a garment, you must wash it in the sanctuary and you have to wash any pots that that blood got on. And if you can't wash the pot, you have to break the pot before you take anything out of the sanctuary. It's exactly what I said last time. The holiness has to be contained inside of the sanctuary because the concern is allowing holiness like nuclear radiation leaking out into a world that isn't prepared for holiness, that isn't ready for it, that cannot handle it, okay? So this is just, it's just there. Uh, but can we take some time and get to like where this road takes us that's really interesting and then is going to wrap back around to the resurrection question? Well, I think we should probably wrap this one and then let's record that second bit and make this a two-part episode because we just have so much to get to here. Yeah, good idea. So, so here's where this is going to be. Uh, really fun. We'll get to it in the next episode is I, th I think part of Graham's question is revealing of actually something that's been common throughout, not just ordinary Bible readers, but actually scholars and even Levitical scholars is that, and there's evidence for this, even in translations that many of us have been reticent to see that holiness is positively contagious or that that theme or idea is present in the, the text about the Levitical system. And therefore we end up making up that what Jesus is doing is, is different than that. Or we don't see that as background to what Jesus is doing, that Jesus is essentially bringing holiness forward positively into the world. And, and actually, Nate, your question on why Jesus had to not die, but had to be raised, why resurrection, is actually related uh, to this, this whole idea of offensive holiness versus defensive protection against defilement and the whole Day of Atonement, scapegoat, all that. So let's hold off on that part. Perfect. Get into it next okay. episode. It's going to have branches and trees and fruit and all sorts of fun stuff. Tributaries? Ah, uh, we might squeeze one in. Okay. I like a good tributary. Okay. 
that's what we're going to do next time. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. If you want to leave a rating or a review on this show, that'd be super helpful. It does help more people with Apple's algorithms and all that find the show. So if you could do that, just go over to the Apple podcast app, find this show and leave a star review. And even you can type out a review if you want. Thanks again to everyone who submitted questions for this episode and for the next one that we're going to do. You can do that as well at almostheretical.com. We have a place to submit written questions, but we especially love it when you record your own voice asking the question. So we can just play it right on the show. And thanks again to all the patrons out there who help support the show and keep it going every month. We will catch you again next week. Peace out.